Hey guys, welcome to the Jesus Name News Podcast. I'm Larry, I got Derek here with me. This week, we have a very exciting episode where we're going to begin our discussion on the book of Ephesians. Specifically, we're gonna talk about the history of the city of Ephesus and what that can teach us about what Paul writes in this letter. But before we get to any of that, let's take 60 seconds and hear from our sponsors. All right, so the city of Ephesus, I, I think probably the most significant mention of it is probably in Acts 19. Uh, well, there is no probably. It is in Acts 19. <laughs> so, but Ooh, that's a favorite. Yeah, I mean, especially in our denomination, uh, we we love because this is where you get the seven sons of Sceva. This is where you get, uh, and we may talk about all that a little bit later, but or in this episode to be more exact. But really. I think that we look at the book of Ephesus, which is filled with all of all of this rich, you know, theology and rich culture, but we need to understand there's a culture behind that letter that was written that Paul is addressing. And, you know, the modern day Ephesus can be found in Turkey. Uh, it became a Roman Republic in 129 BC and actually Augustus, set it up as the capital of proconsular Asia, which a proconsular is just someone who rolls in place, uh, you know, kind of like as a, like in the name of the king or whatever. Uh, so basically it was the seat of the Roman government in that region because Rome understood that the Roman empire was way too big to actually rule from Rome in that time period. Yeah. Very smart on Augustus's part, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, it's not like it's a new concept. It was just, it was different. Like it, you don't see that happen a ton in ancient uh, government, but yeah, I mean, let's be real. Rome was probably the most successful at it. We see all these empires and everything and Rome lasted the longest once yeah, I mean, they got to be like super huge continental empires. And, and I mean, on a technicality, they lasted until the 1800s. <laughs> so uh, yeah. on a technicality. I, mean, I know that wasn't really Rome, but I mean. It was German, you know, but, you know whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love how Napoleon's just like, you're gone. And it's neither holy nor Roman. <laughs> but uh, either way, Ephesus because of its position becomes the center for trade and prosperity. And, you know, this is why Paul speaks a lot of like being humble and being unified in Ephesians, because this prosperous culture had, was inside of the church. The people at Ephesus were not poor people. I mean, they, they were generally pretty well off. And actually what's what I found interesting. And I, I didn't even realize this. It's believed to have quite a large population for being an ancient city, 150 to 200,000 people, which puts it only second to Rome during that time. Wow. So it's, it's, it's like it made sense for it to be the capital of the proconsular Asia uh, because it is one of the largest cities and it's in a great place. But it's also believed, and here's a little bit of church history for you. It's also believed to be the last home of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who lived there with John. 
And actually, it's assumed that John wrote his gospel while he lived in Ephesus. That always, like, confused me. The whole, like, John, here's your mother thing. Like, Jesus had brothers in the church. Well, I think at that point, they didn't really think Jesus was who he said he was. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I just, I don't know. I, I'm i not saying it doesn't belong or anything like that. I think that's, I, I don't like when people jump to those kind of things. But, like, one of the things I want to know is, like, what exactly was Jesus meaning there? Because, like, what about James? And I think Jude, right? Yeah, Jude was also. Jude is, yeah. His, his name was technically Judas, but we Latinize it to Jude for a distinction. <laughs> well, and because, you know, Book of Judas probably wouldn't sell as well. Yeah. But, you know, Acts, it, what I found interesting, though, is Acts 19 actually gives a lot of, and this is really rare, it actually gives a lot of insight to the culture of Ephesus. It's really rare to find that in the Bible when it's when you're talking about you know, places outside of Jerusalem or Israel or Samaria, you you don't get that. But Ephesus is actually one of those places that you find a lot of that. Like even Rome, you don't get a lot of like, oh, this was what was happening in Rome. But it seems like Luke took the time to talk about Ephesus in detail, which uh, which is interesting. Uh, well, and- if- if they were the seat of the empire in that area and a lot of Paul's ministry was in that area, it probably would have been important to Paul's trial. Probably. Cause it wasn't, wasn't he writing his letters to someone involved in Paul's trial? It's thought of. Mm, it's assumed. To it's that- assumed. I mean, yeah, I know it's assumed like we don't fully know, but yeah. Uh, it, we don't really know who exactly he was, but we assume certain things about him because of the way Luke phrases things. But, you know, it, there are a lot of things in Acts 19. You know, this is where, like I said, John the Baptist, he, he, Paul meets some of John the Baptist's disciples. And, you know, he asks, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? To which they reply, we didn't even know there was a Holy Ghost. And Paul then baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus and the disciples receive the Holy ghost and speak in tongues and prophesy, which I've found interesting because John the Baptist at this point has probably been dead for the better part of 20 plus years. And there are still people out there baptizing unto repentance and they don't even know about what's happened in Jerusalem with Jesus. Yeah. I was going to say, that's always my thing with this is like, it, I find it interesting and I feel like it paints a very different picture of what John and even Jesus himself were doing that there was uh, to use this word that has a negative connotation, but it's really the best way to do it. A cult around John the Baptist in Ephesians, like a religious group that's following the teachings of John and his disciples that have remained in Ephesus and they haven't moved forward. They haven't changed what they're saying. Like they're still preaching John's doctrine, even though John's been dead for 20 years. And even though Jesus died and rose and his followers who, you know, John told his followers to follow Jesus. Yeah. So, like, did they go to Ephesus before John told them to follow Jesus? I would did assume they disobey so. John. I would assume that they just went to 
Ephesus and carried back the message of John. And, you know, if you're a Hellenistic Jew living in that time period, you don't really have the knowledge of what the Messiah is supposed to do. You have an idea of what you think you should do, but not what he's supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, It's just interesting to me because like we think of some of these things I, I I believe, and, you know, we've talked about it in our mikvah episode. We've, we've talked about it in a few other places too, that like our idea of how this stuff worked is not necessarily accurate to what we know from history. And even what the text of the Bible really tells us. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, I feel like this is one of those places where it's most known is that these the baptism in jesus name or the baptism even in john's name which is what his followers would have been doing is different than kind of what we talk about and yeah yeah but it's interesting that that happens in in ephesus yeah there's a there's a lot that we could dissect with that um but then you know you you move on from there and paul speaks for about three months in the synagogues uh he eventually quits and he's trying to persuade these people about the kingdom of God. He just quits because there's just unbelief in their people. And this is interesting to me. There are people speaking evil of the way, which is what they called Christians before Christianity. Uh, the way simply referring to Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. Uh, but you know, he, he eventually goes into this and he withdraws and, uh he reasons daily in the hall of tyrannus which is kind of like a meeting place sort of for wise people <laughs> that's the best way i know like to put it in layman's terms uh so this continues for two years though so that all the residents of asia heard the word of the lord uh whether they were jew or greek um then you have this, the seven sons of Sceva. And actually, before you, you go into that story of the seven sons of Sceva, verse 11 says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and, or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And uh, then some of the itinerant, Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had uh, evil spirits. Uh, so the, the sons of Sceva were technically Jewish exorcists, uh, which it's assumed that Nicodemus may have been as well. And I think we all know the story. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches or pro- proclaims and uh, seven sons of the Jewish high priest named uh, Sceva were doing this. And the evil spirit looks at them and says, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know, but who are you? And first of all, that's power. Like, that's powerful. <laughs> uh, Cause he knows Jesus. He knows Paul. And he's looking at the seven sons of Sceva who are the high priest sons. And they're like, he's like, who are you? I don't know you. And I mean, that, yeah. that speaks volumes because, you know, it takes me back to like Jesus saying, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. But where are you at when even the demons don't know you? And beyond that, where are you at when they do? 
Oh, that, yeah. But <laughs> which, I mean, which like, ground do you want to fall on? Yeah, because I mean, like, they go, you know, in the name of Jesus. I, and I think part of the reason they say that is because of the way that they do it. They, they, the way that they word it, they clearly aren't saying in the name of Jesus because they believe in Jesus or because they are, are invoking the authority of Jesus. They're invoking the authority of Paul. He has They're not no- even doing that, really. They're just referencing Paul's authority in yeah, uh, Jesus, you know? Yeah. They're, yeah. They're again, using it like a formula almost. Yeah, they're using it like a ma- they're using it like it's magic words, which I think is really interesting in light of the modern church sometimes because sometimes we use it like it's magic words. Yeah, like we, you just we had say spent, in Jesus' yeah. name and we don't understand what that really means. Or you see, you know, in other churches, they're like in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Like it means nothing. Like they don't, they don't say it understanding what it really means because the way that we use in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy ghost in those churches, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense when you really think of what it means. When I, when I biblically speaking and praying in Jesus name, what I'm doing is saying that I am standing in the authority of Jesus and saying these things. Yeah. That's what that means. When I, when we baptize in Jesus name, you know, I baptized my daughter. Um, she wanted to get baptized. She'd gotten the Holy ghost and she asked and, and my pastor was like, Hey, you need to do it, bro. I was just like, it was, it was pretty great. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm seeking license as a minister and it's something that I will be doing one day, but I'm not yet. And he was just like, you need to do it. And, and when I did it, I baptized her and I baptized her in Jesus name. And, and the thing is, is that in that moment, I was standing in the place of Jesus performing Jesus's baptism. And I was putting her under his authority as his student in his place. Which is, which is going back to Mikvah. Which is going back to mikvah again. And, and that's what they're doing wrong here is they're saying in the name of Jesus that Paul speaks of, they're not declaring Jesus's authority over them. They're just saying Jesus has authority. Paul told us that Paul has authority in Jesus. So you should listen to us because we know who Paul is. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, like that's not how it works like these aren't magic words you have in the name of jesus when you're filled with the holy spirit you have power in jesus name because you have the power to stand and speak for god for jesus and that's where that power comes from yeah and i agree with all that i mean it it, it gets me going man because it's so it's it's such a great example of a, what can go wrong when you misuse it, but B also like it, because it doesn't work, it gives us so much more information about how it does work and why. Yeah. And, and again, going back, like, where are you at when, you know, Jesus says, depart from me, you that work iniquity, I never knew you. It's one, you know, it's, that's the part you don't want. Yeah what you want is for the demons to know you. Yeah. Like you, you want God to know you. And because God knows you, the demons should know you. Yeah. It's kind of like the book of Job. Like, man, I don't want what happened to Job, 
But at the same time, I do want to be like so hardcore that the devil goes to God and God's just like, yo, what about Larry? You think you can mess with him? Cause I'm pretty yeah. sure you can't. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's insane. There is a lot of preaching there and yeah. uh, like, yeah, I didn't yeah. really even realize it until I said it, like, where are you at when the demons don't know you? Yeah. <laughs> and, like, be the one God taunts the demons with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that be that uh, guy, that's some power. Yeah. Uh, but eventually this spirit leaps on all these seven sons and masters them and overpowers them. And they all flee out of the house naked. And I would say naked and afraid, but they're naked and wounded. Uh, I don't you know. know this is interesting too about the demons knowing him and then and thinking of Job, like when Paul talks about that thorn in his flesh, you ever yeah. wonder if maybe the thorn in his flesh was there because God was like, go try it. Feel free. He'll take whatever you give him. And God. But only go this far. God (laughs) has a track record. Yeah. So, but yeah, Sons of Skiba, right? They're they're (sighs) but because because this happens, like it's interesting because what you would assume would bring power to the devil actually brings power to God. Uh, you know, because of this, you know, fear falls upon the the people at Ephesus and the name of the Lord actually becomes extolled higher. And again, it goes back to like, because it doesn't work, it shows us how it works. Yep. I was going to say, I think it goes back to that. Cause I mean, the same thing happens when the possessed girl is following Paul or not Paul around following Peter around. It It was one of the it's one of the two. And he just and like, she, turns back at her and says. <laughs> and like, he's like, okay with it for a little while. And then he just gets annoyed with her. And like in his annoyance, like he's not even doing this in the spirit, really. He's doing this out of anger. He just turns around and is like, in Jesus name, get out of her. And like, all of a sudden, all these demons leave this girl who's like prophesying technically accurately about which the man of god volumes about witchcraft and yeah what which demonic powers actually which do. again so much that we could talk about with the fact that she was accurately prophesying yeah but like it brought fear because it showed the power of god and it directly contrasted it to the other things and the power of the other deities but- in the area because we have to remember and we forget sometimes because we think that even in even in Western Christianity, we think that all religions are fake except mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Like we have this idea that all religions are fake and all gods are false, but we are the exception to that rule. Right. Right. But in the ancient world, nobody thought that way. Everybody. All Everybody took everyone else's gods as legitimate, always. And and, And the thing is, is if you went to the right places, you could see active spiritual power in the name of most of those gods. And and that brings me to the next point. What happens after that? Not only is the name of the Lord extolled, but 
people who were now believers actually came out and said, this is what I've been doing. This is, this is the dark arts. This is what we have. And they actually bring them books and they burn them. And the value that they come to is about 50,000 pieces of silver. Man. Like they burn all of their dark arts books because the seven sons of Sceva inappropriately used the name of Jesus. Tell me you have power without telling me you have power. <laughs> right? So, but the word of the Lord actually, again, it just continued and it prevailed and it increased. And, you know, here's the thing. Like you said, we look at these religions and a lot. Well, that's all fake. It's not fake. Mm-mm. And whether we like it or not, those gods they're either gods or they're demons and they're, they have to be demonic forces. And yeah. And, and even if there isn't an explicit like demon explicit right behind it, right. There's still power in, in the spiritual realm. I hate saying that it sounds so sounds combat. Mythical. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> like, it's just, there's power somewhere just in the fact that those people are believing because God created us in his image. And in that image, we are imbued with, with some level of spiritual authority just because we exist. And so when we come together and we agree on a power, it gives that thing power to a degree. Which is why governments ha- are have power, yeah. Modern governments, anyway, and that's why people. Why I can't wait till we do the podcast for July Fourth <laughs> when we talk about how modern Enlightenment thinking has influenced. But either way, this thing that gives power, uh, you know, when you start doing these things in a hostile environment like Paul is doing, you're going to get enemies quickly and actually acts 19 and verse 23 says about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the the way so there's people are starting to hear about this and there's this man and i'm I'm just gonna go ahead and read it for a man named demetrius a silversmith who had made silver shrines of artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen so he was very rich uh, because of this trade that he had these he gathered oh, together no little business the way that they because i mean there's no way getting around that unless you just completely change what paul actually wrote but like the way they wrote things just it's just said so differently because he means brought a lot of business but he says brought no small business and saying of just, it kind of sarcastically yeah yeah but i'm just like like bro just say he brought a lot of business like <laughs> Let's be a little bit more clear about Luke being Luke. Luke had a history, though, like all throughout his writing of just being yeah. like. <laughs> but it also, it also was a cultural thing. Like it's we're reading something written 2000 years ago. And two, like the, we got to understand Greek and ancient histories. This is not just a history. It is a spiritual piece. Yes. This is the way they wrote. Yeah. They, they took the and they tried to apply poetry where it could be applied. So 
These he gathered together, though. So verse 25 says, these he gathered together, all these uh, silversmiths with the workmen and similar trades and said, men, you know that this business we in from that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificent magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And to make a long story short, the guys come together and they say, great is Artemis of, of the Ephesians. Uh, and the city is filled with confusion and they rush together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, Macedonians who are Paul's companions uh, in travel. Um, first of all, there, there's a lot to unpack here, right? So go skip on down to verse 35 and this town clerk shows up. And he quiets the crowd and he says, men of a feast or sorry of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that, f- that fell from the sky. Eventually the clerk gets the, the people dismissed because first of all, no viable offense had been made toward Paul and his companions. But s- secondly, the crowd could have been charged with rioting. And you do not want to be charged with rioting in the Roman Republic, <laughs> in the Roman Empire, uh, because that often results in your city being raised. Now. Oh, so they didn't die. Oh, that's good. I was like, they totally died, didn't they? No. Oh. It, it's actually funny how law works when it's applied. Cor- Sorry. <laughs> uh, right? Isn't that amazing? So, first of all, who is Artemis? She was goddess of, or she, I don't, I don't even know how to say it. Uh, she is, she was goddess of the hunt. Say is, that sounds, I mean, I know there aren't really active followers of this religion, but I mean, is feels more accurate when describing beliefs of a people. I don't know. You're I mean, a history if, teacher. If you're thinking about, in spiritual terms is uh, goddess of the hunt of wilderness, wild animals, moon, chastity, chastity, um, things on there. (laughs) And actually Diana is the Roman equivalent of Artemis, but here's the thing. And this is where we're going to get into the culture side and why Paul wrote certain things to certain people. Worship was heavily women-dominated, and this explains Paul's emphasis on the place of women in church. Um, Actually, as part of the worship, there was ritual prostitution. Like That was part of what they did, like to the point where scholars say that women were to have relations with a stranger in the temple and before they were married. 
and not with someone who who they were betrothed to. So someone completely strange. Like this was an act done to please Artemis. I mean, my first reaction to that, and I'm I'm sure maybe it's not the most Christian one, is like that's that's not a very like health conscious way of doing things. Yeah. It's it's the first century AD. I mean, yeah, I know, but I'm just saying, like, I, I mean, maybe it's just because everybody always talks about that stuff, like, you know. But oh yeah, well yeah, uh, a large emphasis also. Uh, there's actually a library uh, there as well that you can you can go on Google, Wikipedia, look that up. Um, so knowledge was a very large part of this. Uh, they that's why Paul speaks of in you know of mystery and secrets in the book of Ephesians. Um, he refers to the gospel as a mystery because that's that was the culture of the Ephesians. They believed in mysteries, they believed in secrets, they believed in like all these ancient hidden truths kind of deal. Basically, Paul used some phrases that were pleasing to the people of the city in his letters and now we're still saying it 2000 years later like it has some real meaning and really all it was was him trying to use their words i mean no you're right it it adds to the i mean it does but i'm saying like we make it more than it is sometimes yes sometimes Uh, (laughs) so another thing is this temple of artemis is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world uh one for its size, because it was about 350 feet, had pillars all the way around, uh, 350 feet by 118 feet, somewhere in there. Uh, I've seen other estimates where it was like 400 some odd feet, 418 feet. I've seen, but th- those are all estimates. Uh, so it was, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. One, because of its size, but two, because it was adorned in all this artwork as well. Uh but again, because worship of Artemis was so heavily led by women, women had a strong role in the culture of Ephesus. They, and again, so I'm, I'm going to drop a, we're not talking about this book. We're not breaking this book down. But by the time Paul is writing to Timothy, Timothy is actually head of the Ephesian church. And this explains a few verses where Paul writes. Uh, so first of all, First Timothy 2 and 8 through 10 says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger uh, and quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold, or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So he's, he's a favorite. He's explicitly telling the Ephesians and telling Timothy to instruct the church, like separate yourself from the culture of Ephesus because one, it is immoral. And two, it learns some self-control women because the, the culture of Artemis was women held the power. They could act upon those lusts at any given point. It's so interesting because like, 
again, our background, we're, we're, we're oneness Pentecostals. So we have a background that has a bad reputation for being very legalistic. Right. But when we look at the reasons for some of these letters, a lot of them were two cities that were being controlled by temple cults that were heavy in prostitution and in, you know, just ultimately negative treatment of women. But it's almost like an empowered negative treatment of women. Right. Because they were temple prostitutes, but they were revered as temple prostitutes. But they were still prostitutes. Yeah. And you're not telling me even revered temple prostitutes are really treated all that well because they were still prostitutes. Like there's just, there's no way around that. Right. It's almost like a flipped idea. Like it's a flipped idea of what power empowerment is. It's giving empowered to something that really shouldn't be empowered and can't really be empowered. And The interesting thing is, is that when we look in our culture today, we're doing the same exact thing, only on a much wider scale. We are putting we are we are ascribing power to things that really there isn't power in. And we are like just in a mass delusion that that is a sign of power. There's a few things that we could list off there. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I'm saying like, it's so, it's so much of the same thing when you really apply first Timothy two, eight and 10 in proper context, it speaks so much to our modern culture, exactly. but when you misapply it, it gets to be, it ends up being like a bunch of rules and a bunch of lists of things you shouldn't, shouldn't do. And it loses so much of its power. It's, it's not because the gold and the pearls and all the costly attire within mm-hmm. itself was bad. It's that the culture was empower was doing this false empowerment. Yeah, exactly. And it's not that so much of the stuff that we see in our culture is necessarily bad. It's that the false empowerment of those things and the reason they're doing those things and what they're signifying when they do, when people do those things is negative. Yeah, and moving on to another verse, and I got two more verses I'm going to go with from Timothy, but it, again, it just speaks to the culture of Ephesus. Yeah. First uh, Timothy 5, 1 through 2 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Purity obviously referencing the prostitution cult. And then... First Timothy five, just a few verses later, five, nine through 16 uh, says, let a widow be enrolled. If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works are four good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not, 
So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So again, you can see here like these younger women who lose their husbands. Like He's saying... This is the culture of Ephesus. Don't don't get drawn back into this because you've lost your husband. You know, they've been so freely able to act upon those lusts at a whim. And Paul's saying, don't get drawn back into that. Instead, marry. You know, don't, don't, he even says it, you know, having, uh, I believe it was, yeah, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So they abandon Christianity and go back to their first faith, which was the cult of Artemis. Again, so relevant to today. Like, oh, yeah. Like, it's so easy for people. I mean, I know we're both married, you know, like I've, I've been married for almost nine years now. It's been a while. But uh, <laughs> like... I mean, I remember being single in the church, man. Like, there were times it was like, I mean, if I could just leave and go find somebody, that seems so much easier. Yeah. You know, like, I, I get it. And we make, because of our culture, we make things, some things so much bigger than they really are. You know, like, it, it Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think I and, found something we need to talk about the at some point the uh, the parallels of the worship of Diana or Artemis and and our modern culture. I would. I think we need to write that down. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Let's 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 revisit this when we have a, a full episode or you know six to talk about yeah. it. <laughs> so, also though, this town clerk going back to Acts nineteen and thirty five, the town clerk mentioned a stone falling from the sky. So what's the first thing you think of that say stone and falls from the sky? I mean, some sort of like meteoroid or asteroid or something of yeah. that nature. I mean, I mean, the only thing that really astronomers and scholars would agree on is it had to be a meteorite. Uh, but only maybe, only maybe just because many of these cities had images that priests pretended and people believed came from the sky and fell from the heavens. And this shit, you know, it's, it's that same idea as Aaron putting the gold into the furnace and boom, this Ram comes out. <laughs> but it, it, that doesn't happen. You, you mean the gold it. didn't fall into the fire and come out of rant, come out of bull. Yeah. Uh, that, or, that's not yeah, how it works. And, but like, it's kind of that idea yeah where oh this image fell from the heavens and said its name was artemis and you know honestly though like it's a thing like people if you just keep saying something eventually you'll find people who believe what you're saying well and Especially two, if it's not something that can be like obviously and definitively disproven. Like if it's something that like 
can't be absolutely. And even sometimes if it can be absolutely shown to be false, if you just keep repeating it, people are going to eventually believe it. somebody is going to believe you. And it might not be everybody depending on how good your lie is <laughs> for sure. <laughs> or how many people you have that are lying with you, I guess too. But like, it's just interesting watching people and, and, you know, seeing modern internet culture, you know, it's so easy for us to like mess the with the truth. Like I was reading about the Pringles mascot, <sighs> right? What's his name? Uh, I don't even know. I just call so him mustache. It's Julius P- Pringles, right? <sighs> Is his name now. But here's the thing. It wasn't that until in 2006, a couple of kids in college were messing with Wikipedia and decided to troll the page and update his name to Julius Pringles from Mr. Pringles. And then other people started reporting on the Pringles mascot over the years and nobody corrected it. So they'd reference the Wikipedia page in their articles and say that his name is that. And that's why your teachers tell you not to use Wikipedia. And so eventually, because of this false information that got planted there and people referenced it, and then Pringles was bought out by a new parent company, the new parent company was like, oh, yeah, that must be true. It's on the Wikipedia page. And so the lie actually became truth. And that's so that first of all, lots of preaching can be done on that, too. Yeah, but uh, I'm just saying, like, it's it's interesting with these ideas of these priests faking this stuff and it's like you don't even have to necessarily fake it you just have a group of priests wake up in the morning and go this fell from the heavens these guys saw it well and 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 that's here's the thing there's a man by the name Pliny the elder which is a revered greek philosopher and historian yeah if you look him up like you can find all pretty much any work that you want. I feel like we've talked about him a few times. Yeah, now. a couple times. Uh, but Pliny the Elder actually says that the image was made out of a block of wood with the top portion carved roughly into the shape of a woman. He even goes as far as naming, and I, I didn't really care to find out what the name was, but he does go as far as naming the person who created the image. <laughs> And uh, again, like, but you can just see like the, all the echoes of like ancient Ephesus coming into today, like people just speaking untruth. We call them untruths because they're not necessarily lies, but they're not necessarily fully truth either. Yeah. And you politicians do it, you know, Preachers do it, Christians do it, pagans do it. Like you have people doing this today with, you know, oh, I got a word from the Lord. Well, you know, a guy that said 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Like, come on. Well, yeah. And, and the, you know, the worst part about that is, is that all he had to do was say 88 reasons Jesus could return in 1988 and there'd be nothing wrong with it but 88 reasons he could return doesn't sell as many copies as 88 reasons he's gonna return 
Yeah. And, and that's all it is like, and it's just so. And again, what does that sound like? It goes back to this man named Demetrius. He says, my craft is at risk of being pushed out because of this, these people called the way. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that honestly, and this is, I guess where I'm going to tie in history with spiritual significance. When you look at all these, uh, as far as like Demetrius saying, Oh, my craft is going to be pushed out. Well, it goes back to how many preachers did we hear Trump is going to win in 2020? You know, how many, how many people prophesied that and how many of them were held accountable? How many of them are still prophesying it? Yeah. And yeah, that Ugh. that's a problem. Yes, it is. And it is in the same vein as honestly, it's in the same vein as what Demetrius was doing. I mean, yeah, you can say, well, they're, he's, they're not even going against God. I'm like, first of all, you're adding to the word of God because God didn't tell you that because it didn't happen. And therefore you're in danger of hellfire. Second of all, Going back to the sons of Sceva, you know, where are you at when the demons don't know your name? Where are you at when you're, you're a son of the Jewish high priest, revered, respected, you, you are privy to the secrets of Judaism and you've probably seen this, you know, the, the, the inner workings of the temple and you've been taught those things, but the demons look at you and say, we don't know. you." And you live in, you're in Ephesus. You're probably teaching, you know, all these people about Jew, you know, how to be a better Jew, but yeah, you have no spiritual power. Man. Now I want to do a bunch of sermons on raise your kids, not to be sons of Sceva. There's there's a lot you can preach on. Like, man, like I just like as you're saying that in my head, I'm just like, man, I don't want my kids to be the kids of the man of God who don't know what's real. Exactly. They didn't know what was real. And really, this comes back to these people at Ephesus were totally ingrained in this culture of Artemis, prostitution culture. You know, heaping up knowledge and mysteries and, you know, vain, you know, trying to get more knowledge, trying to be more knowledgeable, trying to be more learned and more studied. But at the end of the day, what is any of that worth if a a priest of Artemis can trick you into believing that a block of wood came from heaven? What mystery are you really heaping up for yourself? Who are, you know, John, I think what to take from this is, is I personally think Luke should have started out with the seven sons of Sceva, worked his way through. If he wanted to be more poetic with it, worked his way through, you know, that riot getting turned down and then ending with, if you're wanting to build a good sermon and ending with, you know, John's disciples. And where they are taught part of the truth, repentance, 
but they don't have knowledge of the full truth. And that's where the Jews, those sentence and power, they, they, they had knowledge of the truth, but they didn't have the power. John's disciples had knowledge of the truth. And when Paul says, Oh, you, you, are John's disciples. Have you received the Holy ghost since you believed? So we don't even know if there is a Holy ghost. We, we haven't been in Jerusalem in years. Like what's going on here? And yeah, cause John didn't have any miracles attributed to him. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he did or not. I mean, maybe he did do some of that stuff, but like John didn't really prophesy other than to point out Jesus who, I mean, let's be real here. He was pretty much told other than when he was in the womb, he would have been told Jesus was who he was. Cause yeah. it's not like his parents and Jesus's parents didn't know who Jesus was. Well, and, and that's my thing. Like, you, you, Ephesus is filled with half truths. Yeah, it's all half some of which some of which have power. When you're looking at the de- demonic forces at work, yeah, they use those half truths to to overtake the sons of Skiva and overpower them because the sons of Skiva don't understand the full truth of who Jesus is and what, what using the name of Jesus is. And then, then you have, you know, this whole thing where Demetrius is like, Oh, my, my business is going to, is going to fail because of these people of the way. So let's all get together and, you know, tell them, Oh, they're causing a stir. They're causing an uproar. When in all reality, you're the one causing the uproar. You're the one causing the stir. And the law comes into effect and you get told you could be charged with rioting. So you have to disperse, but then you get down. Then you, you understand John and his disciples who only know part of the truth, which is repentance. They've been baptized unto repentance and they've been living, preaching, teaching repentance for 20 plus years. And when Paul comes around and says, you know, that Jesus man that John probably told you about his cousin, he was the Messiah. He died. He rose again. And I want you to know that there's something called the Holy Ghost. And I'm going to baptize you in the name of Jesus. And when you come up, you're going to speak in tongues. And you're going to begin to declare the word of the Lord. And guess what happened? Baptized them. They came up speaking in tongues and declaring the word of the Lord. And they took that half bit of knowledge that they had about the mysteries of God and turned it into a full knowledge of what God had come to this earth to do. And I think that we would be all be better off in this culture to stop listening to the, I'm going to say this, stop listening to the news because it's half truths. Stop listening to Twitter and your favorite politician because it's all half truths. You're getting one side. Stop listening to, 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 to all the voices out there on social media. And instead, turn to the Bible. Turn to your church. Turn to, turn to something that has some power that's going to get you through this world. Because, and through this culture of plenty and you know empowerment and self-help and doing better for you. 
turn to something that's going to give you some power to overcome demonic forces and to overcome depression and anxiety and and actually give you power. Absolutely. And, you know, all, all this is really saying to me is that the church of Ephesus really is the church of the half truth. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next couple months is that we're going to be talking about the church of the half truth. And we're going to be talking about all of the things that they only knew a piece of, you know, we're going to talk about grace versus faith and how we can understand what grace and what faith are only in light of each other. We're going to talk about how God is one and what that really means in our life. We're going to talk about the fivefold ministry, how the church should be acting to itself and to the world around us. We're going to talk about the roles of husbands and wives and the family and how God has ordained our home lives to be a sign of him and his power. And we're going to talk about the armor of God. And we're going to talk about what it really is and what it really means and how we should be really using and wearing it in our day-to-day life. The church of Ephesus was the church of the half-truth. And that means we're going to spend the next little while talking about all of these half-truths and more. And we invite you to join us on this journey. Be with us and hear what we have to say every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.